Amen. Let's read from the scriptures from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 this morning. And let's read this together. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, once again, we come to you this morning not to have our ears tickled, not to hear the wisdom of man, not to hear our preferences, nor to see ourselves, but to see you in all your glory. Lord Jesus, you are our King and our God incarnate for us enfleshened for our sin, died on the cross to save us and forgive us, raised for our justification, and now glorified for our intercession, and one day coming again for our glorification. Such grace is beyond anything that we can measure, it's beyond anything that we can know. And Lord, I pray that this morning that as we look upon the mysteries of who you were when you came, who you are now in your eternal glory, Lord, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us. This is, if there is one thing Satan wants this morning, it is to take the focus off of you, to make us think about things that we don't like or things that are not our preferences, things that we'd rather be doing, things we're going to be doing after service. If there's, if there's one thing the enemy wants, he wants the attention off you. And without the help of the Spirit, we will give him what he wants. And so, Lord, I pray your Spirit will enable us, empower us to, to look upon you, gaze upon you with spiritual eyes this morning as you have revealed to us who you are, the perfect revelation of God. To see you is to see the Father. So Lord, help us to see you this morning. May you move me aside and may you speak so that we, your servants, will be listening and we will know who you are and leave with a higher view of you than what we had when we came. It is in your name we pray, amen. Last week, I mentioned the, two, uh, the, the biannual uh, State of Theology survey where Ligonier Ministries, that is R.C. Sproul's ministry, along with Lifeway Research put together every couple of years, uh, just to ask theological and doctrinal questions to the general public. I think they normally do about 3,000 people, which I believe is above a statistically uh, significant sample. I don't know how all the math works in that. But um, 
but they revealed a very, a lot of troubling trends. And among them, I mentioned last week, is that 30% of evangelicals, that is 30% of people in our churches, agree with the statement that Jesus was a good teacher, but he is and was not God. And we mentioned last week that if you agree with that statement, you may call yourself an evangelical, but you are no child of God. In fact, the word evangelical comes from the word euangelion, which means good news. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. And beloved, if he is not God, he cannot do that. So to deny that Jesus was and is God and always has been God, to deny that is to be a denier of the faith. You have fallen for a lie. You have fallen for the enemy. And unless you repent, you're going to hell. And so one of the things I want to be absolutely very certain is that at Calvary Baptist Church, we are clear on this. We are absolutely clear. Because some truths in the faith are are honestly debatable, okay? I mean, uh, when did the Exodus happen? Did it happen in the 13th century B.C. or the 15th century B.C.? I don't know. I mean, I have my opinions, but beyond an intellectual curiosity, I I really don't care, okay? Um, You know, who wrote the book of Hebrews? I have a friend who says that Paul wrote it. I can tell you that Paul didn't, and it's okay. He can be wrong about that, and, and we can still fellowship, right? What are the exact circumstances of Christ's return, the second coming, uh, I tend to lean more amillennial. I know many of you tend to lean more dispensational. And, and that's okay. We can fellowship and have differences of opinions. But beloved, there are some truths that are so central to our faith that to deny them is to deny the faith. And you and I cannot have fellowship, honestly, if we don't agree on them. And surely, surely, this is one of them that Jesus is God. He always was, he always is, he always will be. And I mentioned last week that it's not hard to understand why evangelicals are having trouble with this. I mentioned the one pastor. But uh, I found some more this week. Let me just tell you what they say. These are some of the most popular teachers and resources who represent Christianity today. Creflo Dollar who, in my opinion, is one of the most appropriately named teachers on TBN. Here's what he says. Jesus didn't show up perfect. He grew into his perfection. Somebody says, Jesus, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know that the Bible says God never sleeps or slumbers, and yet we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat, making the argument that Jesus was not God when he came? It's Creflo Dollar. Uh, Some of you may remember that translation, The Message. It was real popular a few years ago. If you use that as your Bible, I'd highly recommend you get another one. It was translated by Eugene Peterson. And this is his translation of John 10.30. I and the Father are one heart and one mind. Now, we're going to talk about that passage in a minute. But you can see right there, hopefully, how he is softening the impact of what Jesus said there. And beloved, even repeating it, I can't bring myself to say this next one. You're just going to have to read it.
I can't even repeat that. What blasphemy. What heresy. The fact that God has not struck Ken Copeland down is a testament of his incredible patience. And by the way, you always wonder why I'm so hard on TBN because they're airing junk like that. I can't even bring myself to repeat that. Get that off the screen, Mark. And so, this is the kind of things that are masquerading as Christianity on the airwaves. These false teachers are pounding us every week on the radio, on TV, and it's little wonder when they're saying stuff like that why evangelicals are struggling with this. We need to be absolutely clear that Jesus is God. So last week we looked at Christ in the Old Testament. This week we're gonna look at Christ and his incarnation. And, and at the beginning of the week, I got out a, a piece of scratch paper and, and just started writing down, listing the different ways that uh, Jesus either declared that he is God or he demonstrated that he is God. And, um, and I just started writing and by the time I stopped writing, I wasn't finished, but by the time I stopped writing, I had 50 different ways in the Gospels that Jesus uh, either demonstrated or, or insinuated or implied that he is God. Now, I know sometimes I push it, but I was pretty certain that you guys would not want a 50-point sermon this morning. So uh, <laughs> I hear a couple of disappointments, but most of you I see nodding your heads. So, um, so what we're going to do this morning, and I'm not saying that just to just to toot my own horn, but but what I am, I do tell you that just to let you know what an overwhelming task that we are undertaking this morning. And so by necessity, it's going to have to be uh, somewhat shallow. I, I hope by now, after eight years of being here, you guys have developed. A, uh, an appetite for deep and rich biblical study. Uh, but we're just not gonna be able to do that this morning. We're gonna, we're gonna, have, to, uh, we're gonna have to kind of remain on the surface a little bit. But we're gonna basically look at two broad categories in which, uh, and overly broad categories, in which Jesus either declares or he demonstrates that he is God. And we're gonna look at that in two ways, basically his words and his works. And so much, very overly broad, we can't give it justice, but we are going to try just to give you an appetite to study these things further. And now that I've made that list, I, I see a potential uh, long-term study coming up. But anyway, so uh, we're not gonna do that this morning. So let's begin this morning with Jesus's words. And, and just like last week, uh, we're gonna be flipping in our Bibles a lot. So you might wanna write down passages. Uh, if, if there are passages I especially want you to see, I'll give you time to turn there. But we're gonna look at this, his words in two ways. Number one, we're gonna look at direct assertions and we're gonna look at dire, uh, divine associations. So let's begin with direct assertions. And there's, and there's two primary passages that I wanna look at. Uh, the first one is John chapter 10, verse 30. We already looked at the terrible translation that Eugene Peterson gave. So let's look at a proper translation and see what it says. It says that uh, Jesus, he says, my father whom has given my sheep to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. A wonderful passage of our security in Christ. 
But then he says, I and the Father are one. I want you to understand that when Jesus said that, that should likely be understood in the context and with the idea of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 in mind. Deuteronomy 6, 4, you may not recognize the reference, but surely you recognize the verse. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that passage, that verse, is the central declaration of the Jewish faith. In fact, the Jews would often recite it on a daily basis. It was so ingrained in their thinking that one, Echad, became a name for God in their thinking. It became a designation for God. Like, uh, like sometimes we'll say God is the one, you know, well, th- well they did the same thing and, he, and it became a name. And so Jesus is calling to mind Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, he's declaring that he and the father are one. He's not only claiming to be the God of Deuteronomy six, four, but he's also claiming a Trinitarian tension that he is one with the father. He is one with him. And of course the Jews listening to him picked up stones and began to stone him. By the way, in the Bible, stones make great commentators. And every time the Jews pick up stones, you can bet, even if we don't quite catch the significance, you can bet they did. And they're ready to stone them. Turn back just a page or two for most of us to John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus is once again having an argument with, uh, with the Jews And uh, they're arguing, they say to him, they say, you're not yet 50 years old and yet you have seen Abraham. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. This is a vital statement, absolutely vital statement. You see, because it goes back to Exodus chapter three, verses 13 and 14, you remember when Moses asked, when, when the Israelites say, what is the name of the God who sent you to us? What should I tell them? What is your name? And God answers him by saying what? I am that I am. And the personal name of Yahweh is actually a derivative of the Hebrew verb to be. I am You see, when Moses asked this question, he was asking for God to define himself. He was asking God for a definition of himself. And in this culture, when someone would ask that question, they would expect the answer to be something like this. I am the God of thunder, or I am the God of the sea, or I am the God of the Nile, or I am the God of whatever. But when God answers that question, he says, I am that I am. In other words, he is self-defined. He is in his own category. There is nothing like him. There is nothing that compares to him. He is of his own significance. He is self-confined, self-contained, and there is nothing in the earth that fits in the category of God. By the way, speaking to TBN teachers, you need to know that very well. You are not little gods. I am not a little God. I cannot claim things into existence. That is something only God can do. 
And so when God says, before Abraham was, I am, he is taking on this self-designation. He is taking on this self-definition that I exist in the category of God. I am God. And once again, the Jews try to stone him. There are many others we could say, but there are some other ways that Jesus makes this claim with his words, and that is his divine associations. And let me tell you what I mean by that. These are things that Jesus says that, um, that again, might be a little difficult for us to, to understand, but the Jews knew exactly what he was doing. And since we're in John, we're going to stay there. John chapter 5, verses 16 and 18 says here, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus broke the rules. They didn't like that. And so they began persecuting him. He had healed someone and told him to carry his bed on the Sabbath. And so he answers them. He answers this, this controversy in verse 17. He says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Now, now, what does that mean? And you can see the Jews exactly understood because in verse 18, they're trying to kill him again. What is that talking about? Well, again, by association, what I mean here is that back in Jesus's day, there was a debate as to whether or not God had to work on the Sabbath or whether he had to rest on the Sabbath, whether or not he had to follow his own law. Uh, which, by the way, uh, for God to have to follow the law, uh, it, he follows the law because it's consistent with his character, not because the law is above him. The law comes from him, but that's beyond the point. So let's, uh, let's get back to this. There was a debate. This debate was going, and most people, some people believe that God had to obey his own law, and he had to stop working on the Sabbath. But the majority opinion, and I believe rightfully so, was that if God stopped working, then we would cease to exist. And so God had to work on the Sabbath. And so most of the Jews accepted that God worked on the Sabbath. Now, you need to understand that background to understand what Jesus is saying here. He says that my father is working until now. That they would agree with. But then he says, and I myself am working. He's saying that if God the Father must work on the Sabbath, then so must I. It's a direct claim to deity. It's a direct claim to divinity. Jesus is not only placing himself above the Sabbath law, he's doing so because he is equal to God. He says in another place, even the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is divine. And that's why it's so important to understand. I, I began in John chapter one this morning because I wanted you to see John chapter one, verse 14. And I want you to, to pay very, very close attention to how that is worded. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among it. In other words, everything the word already was, he then adds to himself flesh. I want you to understand that there is no lessening of who Jesus is in the incarnation. 
He remained 100% God throughout his entire life. From, From conception to death to resurrection to eternity, he is 100% God. He did not lessen any of his attributes whatsoever in order to become less than God when he was here on earth. This is mystery, but it must be affirmed. So there are some things we don't understand about it, but we must affirm it. The incarnation is addition. It is not subtraction. He did not lose anything. He gained a human nature. Christ is God eternal. He became man. He did not become God at any point in his life. Uh, uh, Second century heretics used to say that Jesus became God at his baptism. And, and that, that's called Gnosticism, and it's a heresy. There was never a point in his life that Jesus was not God. He is always was, always will be. He never lost his divinity. Many liberal scholars today and Jesus Seminar and all these kind of has-beens will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. They'll say all these verses we're reading were added by the church later. I... Uh, I actually had a conversation with a Harvard Divinity student one time who, who told me that. He expected me to go to John and he was gonna tell me how John was, John was written later and it's independable and all of this stuff. But uh, here's what I said. and I, Guys, there, there's one thing about Jesus' ministry that both his enemies and his, free, and his followers agreed on. His followers worshiped him for it. And his enemies killed him for it. Is that he claimed to be God. That's the one thing they all agreed on. The one thing they all agreed on. Jesus claimed to be God. I don't care what some popular pastor says. And God never, Jesus never played the God card. I don't care what he says. He doesn't know the scriptures or he's denying them, one or the other. Bottom line is, Jesus claimed to be God over and over and over again. But he didn't just claim it, he also shows it. He also shows it. So we're gonna see not only his words, but also his works. Also his works. You know, and, like, and again, like John, at the end of, at the end of the Gospel of John, if we were to say everything that Jesus did, the, all the scrolls on all the earth couldn't contain. All the oceans of ink wouldn't be enough to write them down. So again, we've just got to, I mean, we could go through every single miracle, every single, every single healing, every single uh, demon possession that he cast out. We could go through every, everything he did and each and every one of them would demonstrate that he is God. Obviously, we don't have time to do that this morning. So again, we're just going to give three overly broad categories here. Just just as quick as I can. Number one, we see that Christ had divine perception. He had divine perception. I went ahead and put everything up there so you could write down the text and look at them later. Jesus demonstrated that like God, he is all-knowing. Now, Now, there were times that in the will of God that he did not exercise this attribute apart from the will of the Father. Uh, For instance, he said that not even the Son of Man knows when the second coming is going to be. It was not in the Father's will to 
to reveal that, and therefore the Son did not know it. That doesn't mean he's less than all-knowing. That means that he is submissive to the will of his Father. It's not a lessening of God. It's not a lessening of Jesus. But there are some ways that he demonstrates that he, know, that he is all-knowing. For example, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and it's parallel text, he knows the future. He knows the future. God knows what is going to happen. He knows the end from the beginning, and Jesus demonstrates that he knows this as well. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem with amazing accuracy. He says that not even one brick will be left of the temple. And we know that when the Romans came in, they believed that there was gold and laced in all the bricks. And so they literally took them down piece by piece by piece to get all the gold out of it they could. So literally not one brick was left standing of the temple after the Romans destroyed it. Amazingly accurate. He also knew events in the lives of people. For example, when Nicodemus comes up in John chapter one and uh, Jesus says, when you were sitting in under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus knew Nicodemus before Nicodemus knew him. We also see that in the woman of the well in John four. You might wanna write that down. It says, go and find your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, uh, yeah, you're right. And he goes on to describe her past he predicted Peter's denial. He predicted Judas, Judas's betrayal. And more than that, he predicted his own arrest, his own abuse, his own death, as well as his own resurrection. Jesus knew everything that was coming. He also knows the hearts of people. He also knows the hearts of people. John chapter two, verse 25, he doesn't need anyone to testify of him for he knows what is in man. He knew that Thomas was doubting and he invited Thomas to examine him in John chapter 21. All of these things demonstrate that, that Jesus had knowledge that was only available to God and the, only, and the only way in which he can know these things is if he were God himself. All of these things demonstrate that. We see divine perception. We also see divine power divine power, his miraculous works. And just to summarize, each miracle is a testimony of Christ. Uh, in truth, they're really not, and this is something that I think the false uh, miracle peddlers today get something wrong. They don't understand that the miracles that Jesus performs are not really about the person who benefited from the miracle. They testify of him. They testify to who he is. They testify that he is the strong man that has come into, or he is the one who has come into the strong man's house and he is subduing him to take over the house and bring the kingdom of God. That is what the miracles are all about. They're meant to enliven faith. They're meant to awaken faith by showing us who Christ is. And, and our English translations kind of do a little injustice here. They, they always translate the word and immediately he was healed, immediately he was delivered or, or something like that. That word healed and delivered is actually the same word. It's soteron. It literally means saved. Each miracle is kind of a mini gospel in and of itself. Each miracle is given to, to understand and help us understand the nature of the gospel. It's meant to testify of Christ, not 
of any kind of magical powers that people claim to have today. He demonstrates this over creation. He calms storms and he walks on the water. By the way, both of those are directly related to Old Testament passages. God makes a path on the seas. Jesus walks on the water. It's not about, it's not about walking above our problems and walking with Jesus. It's, it's about showing us that Jesus is God. That's what it's about. The miraculous catch of fish. <laughs> One time, that's kind of funny. Uh, Peter, Peter kind of, kind of eats his foot again, bites his foot. I can't think of the phrase. And uh, someone says, why, why isn't your master paying the temple tax? And Peter says, oh, he's going to pay it. And he walks to Jesus and Jesus is like, Peter, come on. You know, I don't have to pay that. But then what does he do? He says, go catch a fish, look inside his mouth, get enough for both of us. Don't you wish you could do that? When Benny Hinn does that, I'll be impressed. So anyway, all right. He demonstrates it over disease. He heals the sick. And he doesn't need a lot of stage lights and fog machines and emotional music to do it. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He causes the deaf to hear. He causes the lame to walk. He heals leprosy. And all of this is done on his own authority. He does not call any higher authority of himself. Divine power over, de over demons. He's recognized and feared by them. He cast out demons, even the most severe cases. And he does so only with his word. There, there's no cruciforms. There's no uh, whatever that is. There's no, there, there's none of that stuff. He simply says, leave. He simply says, go. And they go. They obey him even to their own destruction. One day Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And everyone who did not know him will obey him to their own destruction. To their own destruction. He does so by his word. They obey him. No questions asked. He also reveals his power over death. Three times in the gospels, he raises the dead. Most notably, John 11 when he raised Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead for four days. He also raises a young girl. He also raises a widow's son. He has power over death. He even has power over his own death. He was in complete control when he died on the cross. And he demonstrates the power over death when he, ra when he rose from the grave. He has power over death. So we see divine perception. We see his divine power. We also see his divine prerogatives. This is the last one. His divine prerogatives. I was trying to kind of stick with the P's there. So divine prerogatives, like any good pastor, you know, we gotta, we gotta make things in the same letter. Gotta alliterate. He exercises or will exercise the exclusive rights of God. He does things that only God can do and he claims them for himself. For example, John chapter 10, verse 28, he gives life to whom he will. Is how that's worded. He gives life, he has authority to give life and he gives it to whom he will. 
There is no other name under heaven by which all must be saved. And if we will have life, we must and will have life through Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Dead works do not save. And a dead person can only produce dead works. We must be brought to life. We must be born again. We must be given life by Christ. He will judge the world. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, that's one you might want to write down. Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul is not saying this to a bunch of Jews. He's saying this to a bunch of Gentiles. And he says, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, how? By raising him from the dead. God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus will judge the world. Jesus is the one who one day will look upon those and say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Jesus is the judge of the world. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. He is the judge. That's why we say you will either know him as your savior or you will know him as your judge, but you will know Jesus one way or the other. It's inescapable. I hear people say, Jesus is Lord. Uh, What did the old bumper sticker say? It was uh, uh, Jesus is Lord. Uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's the end of it. That's what it used to say. That bumper sticker was dead wrong. The Bible says it, it don't matter if I agree with it, that's the end of it. Doesn't matter. Don't ever assume that just because you're satisfied with your religion that God is. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. The first time he came, As a humble servant, not to judge, but to save. But the second time he will come and he will judge. He will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be his forever. The goats will be lost forever in a burning hell. And if you deny Jesus as God, then you're on your way there. You're a goat. You're not a sheep. You might be a church member, but you are no child of God. Be saved, repent, give up your pride, stop it. Be saved, you cannot be saved if you think that Jesus at any point was not God. If they preach another Jesus, they preach another gospel. Stay away from these lunatics on TBN and on most of our radio waves. Get some good solid teachers who will teach you that Jesus is God to the glory of the Father. Don't have your ears tickled. Repent and believe in Christ. He will judge the world and he forgives sin. And I want you to turn to this one, Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. This is our last one this morning. Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. And by the way, praise the Lord for this, amen? Because if he didn't forgive sin, then you and I would be very, very much in trouble when he comes to judge the world. He he forgives sin. Mark chapter two, 
verses one through 12. It says 12 up there, sorry. Mark chapter two. Sorry for those of you who already wrote it down. He doesn't just, he, and, and, and one thing that Jesus does, he doesn't just pronounce us righteous like a priest. He does that, but he actually pardons us. He doesn't speak on behalf of God. He speaks as God. He doesn't just pronounce us, right, uh, pronounce us righteous, even though he does that. He actually, he actually gives us his righteousness. Only God can do that. But I want you to show you, te- I want to show you this text because in Mark chapter two, all of this comes together. His divine prerogatives, his divine perception and his divine power. I want you to see this and I'm not going to read the text, but you know the story. It's, uh, he's teaching in Capernaum. Uh, it's crowded and four people come bringing a lame man and they, they dig out a section in the roof and they lower him down. You, you remember that story, right? Okay. Well, what happens? I want you to notice, uh, uh, and, and when Jesus, verse five, seeing their faith, said to the paralytics, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Notice carefully the wording of that text. They're not saying this out loud. They're saying this in their hearts. They're asking this in their hearts. They are thinking this. And immediately Jesus, in verse eight, aware in his spirit that they are reasoning that way within themselves. Right there, we see his perception. We see his all-knowing. He knows what's going on in the hearts of men. He knows what they're saying in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. Yes, God can read your mind. I don't know about you, but sometimes that really, 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 I really, really, really don't like that. But he does. He knows what's on your heart. He knows what's on your mind. And he answers them. They don't say a word, but they answer him. But he answers them. He says, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your pallet, and walk? And then notice in verses 12, 11 and 12, he, said, he says to you, so that, uh, he says, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like that. There we see his divine power. By his word, by his word, the paralytic gets up and walks. You know, I can, I can say to, to anyone here today, hey, get up, hey, get up, you know, drop your cane and just start dancing. It's not gonna work, but I can say it. In fact, if it had been anyone other than Jesus, this might have been Cruel. You know, kind of like those old commercials. I always hate it. It's always, I really didn't like this. It was like, if, if you need help reading, call 1-800-ABCDEFG. How in the world are they going to call that number if they can't read? Right? I mean, I just always thought that was cruel, right? If Jesus said, get up and take up your pallet and walk, if he was anyone other than Jesus, that would be cruel. But by the very power of his call, The man is enabled to do so. It's his call that gives him the power to respond in faith. And so in the same way, we see his divine power here where he heals the paralytic. But why does he do that? Why does he do that? 
He says in verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take up your pallet and walk. Watch this, verse 10. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. That's why he heals this man. So that you and I will know through inspiration that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He knows our sin because he has divine perception. He has power to forgive our sins because he is God and has the power to do so. And he does so because he has the prerogative he is God and he alone can forgive sins. All of this comes together in this text. This is why it's so vital. The scribes are right. Only God can forgive sins. Their theology is right. But they're still dead in their sins because they don't recognize Christ. Only God and forget. Why is this so important? Because only God can forgive sins. Only God can bear God's own wrath. Only God can satisfy his own righteousness. And only God can offer forgiveness. And beloved, if Jesus is not God, if there's ever been a time in Jesus's existence that he was not God, then you are not forgiven. You are still in your sin. You are going to hell if Jesus is not God. Only God can forgive us our sins because God is the one whom we've sinned against. Can you imagine for a moment and keeping my distance, I'll just come up to Stefan, just slap him in the face, right? Candy, I'm so sorry that I slapped Stefan in the face. Would you please forgive me? And depending on how much she likes Stefan, she will or she won't, right? No. <laughs> what? Exactly. Why do I need her forgiveness? He's the one I hit. Why is it so important that Jesus is God? Because he's the one we sinned against. I don't need your forgiveness. I need his and the only way I get that is if Jesus is God. If Jesus is not God, you are not forgiven. And if you deny Jesus is God, beloved, you are not forgiven. But you can be because Jesus is God and he offers that to you. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. We thank you that it is not in us, but only Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that we have forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, I fear. I fear for our community. I fear for our churches. I fear in places where this is not made clear. I fear because of the availability of radio and television and the prominence of false teachers in those things, that there are many who are listening to these teachers instead of their pastors. And they are coming up with poor opinions of, of who you are. Lord, if they preach another Jesus, they preach another gospel. So first of all, I pray that you would protect Calvary Baptist Church from the heretics. 
that you would protect us from the false teachers, from the wolves that are in the sheepfold and that are trying to seek and devour your sheep. Lord, I also pray for us this morning that we will have a high view of Jesus Christ. We will know in our heart of hearts beyond a shadow of a doubt that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are our God. With Thomas, we will say, my Savior and my God, my Lord and my God. May we repent of our sins of presumption, repent of our pride, and may we turn to you. May we look upon the one we have pierced, and may we find that your mercy is so sufficient for us. Lord, there's coming a day when the days of your mercy will be over and it will be time to separate the sheep from the goats. I pray with all my heart that no one under the sound of my voice this morning is a goat. But I fear there might be. So I pray we would be clear on this, that Jesus Christ, you are the only one who can bear your own wrath sufficient so that we can be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. I pray we would come to you and know you. Let's stand together and sing this classic praise.